Hello, and welcome to What is X? I'm your regular host, Justin E.H. Smith. As regular listeners will know, on each episode, we investigate some given X, where it is a general concept that we all talk about a lot, but that is often rather hard to define. Today, we're going to be talking about an ever-timely concept, the one that seems particularly timely in 2022, namely war. What is war? Our guest today is someone who knows a lot about war. His name is Vladislav Davidson. Rather than trying to sum up his various exploits, I think I'm going to allow Vlad to tell us who he is and what he's all about. Oh, but before I do that, I do want also to mention that Vladislav is the author recently of a lovely book called From Odessa, Odessa with Love, Political and Literary Essays from Post-Soviet Ukraine, and I strongly recommend that everyone rush out and get that book. Uh, Vlad, tell us about yourself. What's your whole deal? <laughs> Justin, thank you so much. This is great. A great honor. We've been we've been uh, friends for, uh, uh, I think, more than a decade. Yeah. We don't see each other as often because you work a lot and I work a lot yeah. as we would like. And I'm, I'm very peripatetic. In fact, you are also. We're both wanderers and travelers. I'm also a reclusive misanthrope. <laughs> and while I, on the other hand, am an extremely sociable misanthrope. <laughs> Um, which, which uh, you know, sometimes that works and our vibe shifts work. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, I, I spend a, a lot of time uh, with uh, politicians and spies and businessmen and parliamentarians and evil people while you are clean and your soul is unbesmirched with a sort of filth that I have to cover myself with from morning till night in order to bring the good people the information that they need about the way that the world in Eastern Europe actually functions. All right, now we're getting right into the thick of it. Eastern Europe, you are uh, 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 what you might call a Ukraine hand. Tell us about your experience and your authority in that part of the world. I am a... An American citizen and uh, a European, and also I had a Russian passport until I recently burned it. On the night of the 25th, my wife, who's Ukrainian, asked me to burn my Russian passport. I did that live on CNN. So I, I am deeply from the Belarus-Russian-Ukrainian lands. I am 10,000, maybe 50,000% an Eastern European in my head and in my <laughs> affect and in my culture and in my values and in my everything. I was born in Central Asia to Ukrainians who had fled Hitler, Ukrainian Jews, and to uh, a Russian from Georgia and to a Belarusian uh, Jew from uh, from uh, Bobruisk. I was educated in the States and I spent a lot of time in the diaspora. I grew up in a fairly hardcore diaspora situation. And then, as happens, I uh, I really wanted to go back and, and, you know, I have a very strong relationship to my ancestral lands and to the mm. culture, and I studied Russian literature at university. I, I was a philosopher like you uh, mm -hmm. as, as an undergrad, mm -hmm. but uh, um, ultimately I became a man of action as opposed to a man of thought. But <laughs> I, I, I treasure my philosophical uh, training, which was quite rigorous at, You're at like CUNY. Alexander the Great to Simon Critchley's Aristotle. In fact, in fact <laughs> I, st I, studied, I studied Heidegger with Critchley in New York Amazing. as a 23 year old. In fact, I ran into him in a bar in London two days ago, and he mm -hmm. remembered me of those many thousands of students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Not uh, surprising. <laughs> and, and, and he, in fact, told me that, you know, uh, uh, he confirmed that he told me when we were studying Heidegger together that I should just go off and become a international man of history and a spy Heideggerian <laughs> in Eastern Europe. And I, and I did exactly that. And he says, see, I was right all those years ago, basically. <laughs> Amazing. So I, I've been writing about Eastern Europe from both a political and an aesthetic vantage point for about 14 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I started as a literary critic, then I actually moved to Ukraine. I married a Franco-Ukrainian lady. We speak Russian at home, but we're both very patriotic. Mm -hmm. And we are involved in Ukrainian 
life, cultural mm-hmm. life. We had mm-hmm. a magazine there. We had a we had a uh, we gonna had a film company there. My wife produces films there. Uh, we're activists. Uh, we taught there for a long time. We lived there for a long time. We're mm-hmm. very deeply involved in the intellectual life of this country, which in many ways has one of the most interesting intellectual mm-hmm. lives lives in development in Europe now. I would say that Kiev is the most alive city in terms mm-hmm. of living, breathing culture in the way that something remarkable and transformative is happening in a, in a healthy and mm-hmm. generative and revolutionary fashion, the way that you haven't seen since like St. Petersburg in 1924 mm-hmm. or Berlin since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. The, Kiev is in many ways mm-hmm. the most generative place in Eastern Europe now. You're, mm-hmm. creating, uh, you're creating a national culture mm-hmm. in real time. While you're fighting a war mm. and while you're creating a, 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 the final collapse of a post-Soviet empire and while all the forces of good and bad and forward and backward and revolution and conservatism and revanche and avant-gardism are embedded in the same city. Mm-hmm. So it, is, it, it has all the chaotic generative character traits of a city and a country and a nation at war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, that's me. I, I studied political philosophy, then I studied art history, then I moved to Venice. I did a human rights master's degree. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote my thesis on uh, uh, universal skepticism of the found- universalist foundations of human rights, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is to say I, I, uh, I did a troll thesis on being against this six months later i was running guns to the ukrainian army uh so, you uh-huh. know from theory right to practice yeah yeah that's <laughs> quite a leap yeah, yeah yeah when you say that uh kiev is in the midst of generating a national culture that makes me think of a an initial question that has to be asked about Ukrainian identity. Um, the national identity is something that's still in the process of being formed, I suppose. Yes. And it's probably been, uh, given a great leap forward by the war, right? There's that much more pressure all of a sudden to, uh, to think of yourself as Ukrainian. Do you feel that pressure? That's absolutely. It's a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And Ukraine is, a polyglot, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, multi-religious mm-hmm. state with mm-hmm. all sorts of different people living together, mm-hmm. mostly in a productive and generative and, and most of the time nice way. Mm-hmm. You know, Ukrainian is someone who's born in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you're Crimean Tatar or Jew or Bulgarian from Odessa region mm-hmm. or Pole on the leave border or someone who is uh, from the Donbass who speaks Russian at home or an ethnic Hungarian of Transcarpian Athens who goes to college in Budapest and sends mm-hmm. his daughter abroad. Doesn't matter. You're a Ukrainian citizen. It's a wonderful polyglot very tolerant society, mm. and in, in many ways, its anarchic, chaotic, democratic thing is the opposite of the way that the Russians run their tremendously multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, multi-identity state with centralized, autarkic, authoritarian power. Mm. The, you know, they, they really represent the, fu- the future and the past, mm-hmm. centralization against chaos, you know, all sorts of these happy binaries, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yes, you you are in the midst of constructing a culture mm-hmm. from a people who are basically stateless for mm-hmm. seven eight hundred years, mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. in between someone's German, Russian, or uh, Lithuanian Catholic political project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, Ukrainians were always in between Russians and Germans, right? And they were they were, I mean, they had an aristocracy, but for the most part, they were they were. They were not seen as aristocratic by their German and Russian overlords, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. although they had the, you know, secondary relationship to the, to the Russians within the, the Russian imperial and communist political project, where mm-hmm. they they were seen as equals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could become a Russian general in the Tsar's army as Ukrainian. You could become a member of the aristocracy. You mm-hmm. could become secretary general of a, of a communist party. Right, right. So Ukrainians are to the Russians as Scots are to the English within the British colonial project. Interesting comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what is the uh, l- likely outcome, in your view, with respect to national identity for Ukrainians five to ten years down the line of this uh, war? 
I mean, nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows for may, sure. And you might want to give your best case and worst case scenarios. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. So uh, prediction is this, that the, the Ukrainian state will survive in one way or another. Mm. It will be a rump state. Will it have access to ports? Will it will will uh, Putin just croak and the, the Russian political elite will go back to normal with the West? No one knows. I mean, they've fought well enough at it, it's seems most probable that some amount of Ukrainian land, maybe 60%, 50%, 70% of what we had in February 24th will be in a Ukrainian political project if the Russians are uh, brought back to the boundaries of mm-hmm. February 24th. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that the Russians are fighting badly and that the Ukrainians are getting more and more uh, uh, weaponry. It's been a grim time and I've had some grim conversations and it's going to be a tough fight, and the Ukrainians are holding on by uh, the string in many places, including Mikolaev. The Russians may, may very well take more places like Kharkiv. They may very well take places like um, Zaporozhye. They may have um, another go at Kiev. You never know. Mm-hmm. So it, it could really go either way. Mm-hmm. Victory, total victory now of the Ukrainians between 5 and 15%. Survival as a economically viable sovereign nation state 50-50 at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. unless other things change, mm-hmm. which a lot mm-hmm. can happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that. Let's say there is something there uh, to um, to salvage. It depends on how badly or well they do in the war. It's mm-hmm. entirely possible that the the Russians do succeed in partitioning the state. There will be mm-hmm. tens of millions of very angry, un- unhappy uh, refugees into Western Lviv area, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it will be a very, very, very nasty in terms of its bitterness mm-hmm. for obvious and, and completely understandable reasons. Polity full of traumatized people who will transform it into a militarized, autarkic, really nationalist state with uh, uh, the, the kinds of relationships with its with its outer border that Israel has, mm-hmm. or actually that's changing very quickly. Right. But the example of Israel is something that... And Zelensky has brought this comparison up with Israel, say, the Israelization of Ukraine. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that's... Uh, you know, obviously, that's an interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't mm-hmm. think the Russians are going to take Kiev. They just don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to partition the state. I do think that the Ukrainians are going to be successful in retaking uh, Kherson mm-hmm. and uh, not Mariupol for, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. The Russians mm-hmm. won't give that up, mm-hmm. including the fact that there's just too many bodies there. They, mm-hmm. they need to keep uh, they need to keep evidence from uh, mm-hmm. from the Hague. Right, right. You know, right. they're going to fight very hard to keep Mariupol. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- that's the military stuff. What will happen with identity is that uh, I don't believe that Pushkin will be canceled all across southern Ukraine in a way that uh, lots of people want. In fact, I'm I'm personally I'm not into canceling Pushkin. Pushkin's just another <laughs> Pushkin's just another Bohemian guy like me in Odessa who had a, who drank right. and ran around and had a good time. You know, Pushkin Pushkin's not responsible for any of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there there will be a lot of people who want to become really 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 patriotic Ukrainians but still want to speak Russian at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The obviously 90% of the population now are really really patriotic. Mm-hmm. Nothing builds social cohesion like getting your house blown up in the middle of the night for no reason. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. So there'll, it'll be a new a new fused binary culture. There'll mm-hmm. be a lot more Ukrainization. It'll happen quickly. But I, I still think that the South and the Southeast will still be really uh, Russophone, although a lot of young people will s- switch to Ukrainian for, for patriotic reasons. So th- there's my there's my very, mm-hmm. very, very tacit and very light prediction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That seems... Plausible. Uh, now, you've seen over the past few months, you've seen a lot of uh, the war close up, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um, what's been most uh, striking or perhaps difficult to process that you want to disclose? So I will I will not be disclosing some things that are very personal or very private or that I signed uh, NDAs for or where I broke laws in multiple countries in order to help people. And I did. And I I, I don't feel bad about it um, whatsoever. I did uh, all sorts of things. I had all sorts of experiences, all sorts of very interesting experiences. And um, I mean, war is catastrophic. When you're just running around with men and guns on the front line, it's, you know, tremendously interesting. When you see young women arriving in Poland and asking for abortion pills uh, Mm. for, uh, you know, 
pills because they, they got raped by the Russian soldiers who let them out of the of the checkpoint that morning. They arrive and the first thing they get to is Poland and there's no pol there's no abortion rights in Poland. That's mm-hmm. not that's not pretty. You see people with everything that they own in the back of their car. The car is shut up. Uh, they have they have kids written scotch tape on the back of of their trunk so the Russians won't shoot at them. Mm-hmm. They have all their worldly possessions in this beat up little Volkswagen on the border, the Polish border, mm-hmm. and you give them fifty dollars and they start weeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had I've had experiences that you know traumatic experiences and mm-hmm. watched watched the most horrific things. The thing about war, if we're going to get into the philosophy yeah. of war, is that it, it, it unbundles the taboos of, mm-hmm. of ordinary social life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it simply unbundles taboos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Civilized life is based on all sorts of taboos. In wartime, they are either disregarded, inverted, mm-hmm. or they're humorous. Mm-hmm. I can give you an example, of a, as a philosophical example of, sure. of, of a taboo. If I come to Justin Smith's apartment and... I move his stuff around. I don't steal anything, but I just move his stuff around while looking for food or looking at his computer or something. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely ridiculous Mm -hmm. from Justin Smith's own boundaries. Never happens in peacetime. Never happens in peacetime. But if if everything outside the house is being blown up, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if anymore, if I just go into your bedroom and look at your stuff or look for some food or look for some papers to bring you. Mm -hmm. So that is is a taboo that is unbundled. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter anymore. Taboos... Mm -hmm fall away mm-hmm. that's what war does it intensifies relations mm-hmm. and emotional states to their maximal level mm-hmm. and it unbundles all the various things that we use to live in civilized ways mm-hmm. except the very worst stuff like genocide and rape mm-hmm. uh, mass mm-hmm. rape we, mm-hmm. we we you know we we still keep as a taboo but war does the most horrific things to to societies and to people's minds it basically mm-hmm melts people's brains mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um what about the inversion though because obviously people still have morality and loyalty and so on but it's more focused on specific people on our own people rather than the other people right so it's not as if war is simply all against all or a completely animalistic degeneration it's more uh reshuffling of our conception of who we owe something to you think so, and I would think so, but then I, you see so many random acts of complete, tr- tremendously unexplainable kindness and mm-hmm. generosity. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous acts of generosity, and, and the same kinds of unexplainable acts of cruelty. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the midst of war, you see, you see the things that you, you as, a, as a misanthrope expect to see having read, <laughs> having read your Foucault and your, your, uh, mm-hmm. your, your misanthropic philosophers. You, mm-hmm. you, explain, you expect to see the worst things about mm-hmm. human nature, and you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People making fortunes mm-hmm. under the cover of night. You, you see people stealing their, their friends' stuff. You see people uh, uh, sending people that they lived with to... to in, to, to get shot you, you mm-hmm. see the, the most horrible things mm-hmm. but also you see people randomly picking up kids of dead neighbors mm-hmm. and taking them adopting them on on the spot mm-hmm. taking them across the country mm-hmm. you see people giving away all their cash mm-hmm. to random people mm-hmm. you see people engaging in completely random or randomized seemingly randomized acts of extraordinary generosity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what war does it, it kind of parses human capacity to its maximal uh, to its maximalist uh, state right mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. emotional state is at its maximal mm-hmm. you either collapse from exhaustion or you know some people arise they're heroic some people have in, 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 intense internal reservoirs of virtue mm-hmm. of bravery that mm-hmm. no one knew about some mm-hmm. people who announce that they're going to be tough guys mm-hmm. run away. Mm-hmm. I was drinking with a very tough guy, Georgian officer, the head of one of the uh, volunteer battalions two days before the war. And he was a tough guy with a big beard and huge <laughs> muscles. And he's screaming how he's going to eat the Russians with, with his own bare hands. And he's going to eat them and rip their, rip their intestines out. And he's been training for this for 10 years. A month later, I was getting a, uh, a ride from Dnipro to, uh, to the Battle of Severodonetsk. 
by a reconnaissance officer who was with him at the Battle of Gostamel. He's like, yeah, that guy, that guy, he he ran away. He just like, the car behind him got blown up and the car behind that car got blown up and he, he freaked out and he drove away. Uh, so you never, you never know. Some, some little, little kids, mm-hmm. young people, young women mm-hmm. stand up and they're full of tremendous bravery mm-hmm. and some... Tough guy, Caucasian, uh, Caucasian, not Caucasian, the white yeah, guys, real the, Caucasians, real yeah. Caucasians, <laughs> bearded guys from the Caucasus who've been fighting their entire life, run away from the Battle of Gostamel, uh-huh. and you don't know what's going to happen. It's completely yeah. randomized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you obviously have uh, read uh, widely um, literary representations of war, and you know history and all of that. Is there anything about the nature of war that you could not have understood until you were on the front lines in Ukraine. Yes, I'd spent a lot of time in places like Iran and Iraq um, and other places like that, uh, Africa, you know, Gaza, Palestinian situation, you know. But, you know, in in this situation, I have skin in the game. I had to take my own relatives out. I took five Mm -hmm. of my own relatives out with my own money. Uh, you know, uh, being treated as a refugee on the border as opposed to a journalist is completely different. That was in Moldova. Once in Moldova, once in on once in Romania, and once in Poland. I've mm-hmm. gone in and out through all four through all four countries. Mm-hmm. Not Hungary though. Uh, on the Romanian border, I was treated as a refugee, mm-hmm. and the Red Cross was like, "Sir, do you want some tea?" I said, "No, no, I'm at every Atlantic Council." Sir, would you like some tea? I said, "Yes." <laughs> 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 After six hours in the snow on the in March on the Romanian border, mm-hmm. you want some tea? It doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> so, uh, war is one absolutely exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Two, it's absolutely exhausting and destructive to any capacity to live a normal life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. three uh no one explains to you just how bad an explosion near your head is for mm-hmm. me- m- mixing up your your brain it's still mm-hmm. reverberating in my head mm-hmm. months later uh, ptsd is real mm-hmm, post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder is absolutely real anyone who is in the war zone will have it to one degree or another i'm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very resilient mm-hmm. i've been trained for this I get off on this. I enjoy this. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the damage to uh, whatever parts of the sensitive parts of my brain isn't real. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and uh, I have no compunction about playing the tough guy mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. There, there will be there will be tremendous trauma to all of us. Mm-hmm. That will be intergenerational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that this maniac Putin has caused. There mm-hmm. will be generations of traumatized kids. There will be generations of. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers running around with post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. uh, committing crimes, uh, committing suicide, um, uh, acting out in public spaces. I've seen a lot of it already. I mean, mm-hmm. how many times had I flown into Kiev and some guy from the, from the front line would just start screaming when a woman touched his bag in the overhead compartment and mm-hmm. start screaming? And, you know, you've already seen a lot of PTSD in the society, but the, mm-hmm. the, the trauma and the pain mm-hmm. that, that this has brought to the society will will compound the pre-existing mm-hmm, trauma mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's very bad mm-hmm. so that, that's what they never teach you about how exhilarating it is in literature how exhausting and deafening mm-hmm. and demoralizing it is and how much a russian grad missile landing 500 meters from you does to uh, uh to disorient you mm-hmm. and your senses Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, so Putin is a maniac. That uh, is, uh, among other things, a judgment that uh, that suggests that you think uh, he could have done differently. That suggests, in turn, perhaps, that um, human beings don't really need war. War is not an actual part, uh, necessary, ineliminable part of human life, right? If we just could somehow get the maniacs uh, out of leadership roles, then we could live in peace. Do you think that's true? Or do you think there's something, so to speak, unavoidable about war in human history? I do not believe that war can ever be eradicated from Mm. from the human condition. I Mm -hmm. believe that war is part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. I believe that 
scarcity of resources mm. is part of a human condition. I believe that uh, there are levels of emotional, psychological, social development. Mm. These are very 19th century ways of being mm. for societies as well as individuals mm-hmm. where, where a tribe or a nation or a family is on the rise and mm-hmm. then it's going to become strong and then civilized and decadent. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about this way now in, in our post-temporal space. Mm-hmm. But war is something that is bred into us mm-hmm. and its evolutionary structures mm. are inside of us mm-hmm. because we're absolutely monkeys. We're apes, right? I mean, <laughs> speak for yourself. Are you a risen ape or a fallen angel? I'm no fucking angel, my friend. <laughs> well, look, I mean, uh, we are indeed apes, but you might also think that uh, war as we understand it today is a consequence of the formation of empires of um, uh, uh, complex societies with territorial interests and that this might represent a certain stage of humanity that um, comes, say, between hunting and gathering and whatever in the distant future we might have without war. AI cyborg uh, world. Yeah. Right, right, right. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there is um, a a curious sense in which we, I, I feel like we've been thrust back in into the late 19th century all of a sudden. In all the best ways? Well, in some good ways, but in some (laughs) bad ways, right? I did not, up until February 2022, I myself was at least somewhat convinced that great power conflict was coming coming to an end in favor of, you know, kind of low-level things like hacking and cyber terrorism, things like this that made dispute over territory, buffer zones and things like that seem really old-fashioned. And so when the invasion actually happened, it seemed to me like a throwback. Um, Putin seemed like he was doing something that belonged in 1914. Oh, yeah. uh, And that didn't really have a place in the world anymore. Is that just because I've been living in a bubble whereas Putin has not been? No. And yes, actually. I mean, we're, we're, return, we're returning to whatever you want to call the interregnum after the, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call that post-Cold War consensus, that mm-hmm. 20, 25 years of peace yeah. that, that the Americans bought for the world mm-hmm. and also squandered immensely. Yeah. This is our own fault. Yeah, I mean, 20 generations, uh, 20 years, a generation of, of American policymakers squandering that 20-year peace to uh, create something good fin- financially. I mean, we're not going to go into, into all the many problems of America, but the, the West squandered an opportunity after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Mm. It was possible that perhaps we'd go with enough power off into the future where we'd have Pax Americana for another 100, 200 years. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. We had 25 good years. And now we in Eastern Europe have ruptured post-historical, post violent post hunter gatherer post whatever consensus <laughs> that the neoliberals had uh, said that was going to hold for all time i mean they the the russians uh, if it wasn't literal enough they literally uh, sanctioned and deported francis fukuyama from moscow like a month ago they mm-hmm. they literally said we're sanctioning francis fukuyama the end of the end of history is over our friends that is really the end of history <laughs> yeah the end of the end of history the end of the end of history is when yeah. the russian government literally sanctions francis fukuyama <laughs> what, what else do you need to know that's that's mm. that's it i i do believe that western europe and canada and america were living in a bubble mm-hmm. and that they did not understand the way that real power dynamics work Mm -hmm. in the real world in Eastern Europe and in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. For a long time, they had so much prosperity Mm -hmm. and so much economic and political power and such a strong army Mm -hmm. that they were able for a generation to protect themselves from uh, from the real world and Mm -hmm. the way things work. That was not the case in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. In Eastern Europe for 20 years, we uh, uh, ate the... uh, 
I have I have a friend who refu- who refers to it. Can I can I use some curse words? Of course you can. Yeah. Thank you. I have a friend who refers to it as the Holodomor Holocaust communist shit sandwich. <laughs> so we in Eastern Europe, all of us, the Hungarians, the Poles, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Bel- the Belarusians stayed in their own weirdo <laughs> epistemic bubble. They mm. they prefer to stay in their own in their own little world. Mm. But all of us, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Hungarians, the Poles, the Czechs, all of us who had gone through the Holodomor, the Holocaust, communism, Russian imperialism, Red Army imperialism, we spent 20 years sorting ourselves out mm-hmm. economically and politically. Mm-hmm. Some of us did that right. Some, most of us didn't do it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we spent 20 years sorting out the consequences of a collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. To some extent, that time is over. Mm-hmm. And we've returned... Now that no one is any longer forcing us to behave ourselves, mm-hmm. that uh, the Hungarians and the Poles and the the, the Czechs uh, have uh, uh, eaten eaten their incentives to behave themselves by becoming members of the European Union and mm-hmm. NATO, mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the the Russians went back to autarkic fascism of whatever sort, toxic mm-hmm. nostalgia. And Ukrainians were caught between two worlds or unable to join either one completely for right. for various structural reasons. Right. We're going back to history. Mm-hmm. We, we're literally ejecting Francis Fukuyama from our capitals. We're mm-hmm. literally rearming. We're literally going back to, uh, uh, to like really conservative nationalist values mm-hmm. of a kind that win wars, right? Mm-hmm. All our hipsters in Ukraine fight the entire hipster class mm-hmm. from the writers to the filmmakers to the poets to the translators. All the hipster men that I know with beards who are in publishing mm-hmm. or in media. Or writing poetry, or writing bad novels, they all join the Ukrainian <laughs> army or the territorial defense mm. units, right? It's almost—it's almost as if, though, that 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 that's as much as to say that they're not hipsters anymore, right? Because the whole hipster affect—this is just a tangent, by right. the way—was. Um, to my mind, a symptom of the illusion of the end of history in the West, right? Um, And once you're thrust back into history, you can't live your life in, so to speak, scare quotes anymore. Correct. No, I, uh, look, I, I still, I still go to museums and wear black glasses and, and uh, funny bespoke suits. And I also go to war. It's okay. And, uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> was Kozhevnikov right? I mean, literally, I literally grew up in, in Brooklyn, mm. uh, uh, avoiding, uh, uh, avoiding my, uh, uh, because I have a, my, my family had an apartment in Moscow and literally the, from the time I was 18 to the time I was, uh, 28. Mm-hmm. No, no. Thankfully, no longer young enough to be conscripted to the Russian army. The, uh, the, every year uh, at uh, induction time, the, the, the guys would come, the army guys would come to my father's apartment mm-hmm. saying, where's the young Vladislav? He has to oh, serve in the army. Wow. At the time, I was uh, living, uh, living in Williamsburg, uh, mm-hmm. a hipster life, and uh, <laughs> reading books and going to CUNY and studying philosophy mm-hmm. with Marshall Berman and, and Simon Critchley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Kozhevnikov, in, in this very personal Encapsulation of, Kodrev, mm-hmm. you know, Kodrevnikov famously said, uh, uh, you know, against the, the, uh, against the, uh, uh, the, the, the construct of better, better to be uh, a member of the Red Army than a hipster. He said, better to serve, uh, I don't remember the exact phrase, but better to serve wearing the, the steel helmet of the Red Army than to eat cheeseburgers in Brooklyn. Now, I, I had the choice and I actually went for cheeseburgers in Brooklyn. It's much better. I have to tell you. Not much. So Kozhevnikov was entirely wrong in, in, in the conjecture that it is better to be a member of the Red Army than to be a hipster. It's not. Mm-hmm. Clearly not. But our hipsters in Ukraine mm-hmm. who, are, who are strong Mm-hmm. And they're liberal nationalists, and mm-hmm. they are healthy, mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. nothing unhealthy about them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They're not decadent at all. They're mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. They 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 still have beards, and they still drink uh, f- fun beers, and they. But they're not they... like the Caucasian guy's beard. <laughs> Clearly not. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I remember when I was in Beirut at some point in a bar. Um, there was some kind of. Um, uh, uh, graphic poster over the bar yes. on how to distinguish an Islamist beard from a hipster beard in case you were worried. Um, That's about right. Uh, yeah, That's about yeah, right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But no, look, we're not talking about, well, no, I mean, this is relevant. It's not that, the, it's not that this question is irrelevant because, I mean, it does raise an important issue about 
liberalism in the post-Soviet sphere, right? And I can think back to the 1990s um, with, you know, Jeffrey Sachs shock therapy type stuff, oh, yeah. where it was as if the Americans who were parachuting in to fix the place just could not get it through their heads that this region had a history at all and that the people who were living there were living out their histories and you couldn't just kind of immediately plant the the seed of this kind of contextless historyless liberal free market and expect it to thrive right but now in the present moment um we understand that hopefully somewhat better but we still do place some hope in the forces of liberalism in ukraine right we think that's a real kind of indigenous uh a spirit that is going to um that is going to in the future be a success story Barefoot. and maybe even a uh, kind of a beacon for the rest of eastern europe oh right? yeah oh yeah, mm. yeah yeah i mean like i i i mean i'm only i'm only quasi trolling when i tweet things like uh, we we eastern europeans we ukrainians will save western civilization from its decadent torpor <laughs> i'm only quasi quasi joking the, the russians and ukrainians say there's a is dolya shutki v kazhdy shutki there's a there's a there's a portion of a joke in every joke yeah right? yeah yeah uh <laughs> that's funny right but oh, yeah. <laughs> uh i love that saying when i when i learned it, i was so happy even as a russian i was so as a russian ukrainian i was so happy when i learned that saying uh, there, there is absolutely a rupture mm. in post-historical time. Mm-hmm. It's over. Mm-hmm. We were, we were stupid where we pretended that that time was over. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was uh, this was uh, something that was completely normative in certain sectors of society in in America, mm-hmm. in academia, in the West, amongst advanced social classes in the UK, in Canada, in France. We were playing games. Mm. History is never over. Mm-hmm. It's only over if you build enough imperial force mm-hmm. in order to keep the forces of uh, contrapunctual violence at bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sound rather conservative, don't I? Uh, well, um, difficult to classify uh, as usual. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm all for LGBT rights in Ukraine. I mean, mm. like I, I'm all for uh, all that. And, you know, but that's yeah. actually an interesting, I mean, maybe another issue, yeah. but the way I, I, I read somewhere recently that support for LGBT rights has spiked in Ukraine over the past months, almost as if this is kind of a shibboleth of Western belonging. Yes. Right. This is something that's pushed on them mm. from externally, and the classes in Ukraine, which are, let's say, the intelligentsia and the opinion-making classes mm. or the activist classes, they're more formally integrated, assimilated into, let's say, those kinds of Western dialogues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. You know, all my friends amongst the intelligentsia and art classes and the filmmakers uh, and the writers in Kiev and Odessa and Kharkiv, none of them are against gay marriage. Mm-hmm, no one mm-hmm, is, you know. Mm-hmm. Trans rights is nowhere near the universe. There's mm-hmm. nothing to do with uh, with, with politics there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's no real left or right politics in Ukraine. Mm-hmm, there's no right, there's right. no workers uh, and bosses. There's no left and right. There's no everyone's basically like center right conservative. Mm-hmm. It's a heavily agrarian culture. Mm-hmm. Most people are farmers outside of uh, these towns where I hang out with. Mm-hmm. With uh, intelligentsia people, there's a lot less caste hierarchy mm-hmm. and class hierarchy mm-hmm. because almost everyone is poor, and the and the middle class is so small compared to right. uh, a country on the same developmental trajectory like North Korea or Poland. Uh, so, South Korea, sorry, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> right? it's not that bad. Not that bad. It's yeah. South, South Korea and Poland. There's a very, very, very small middle class. Mm-hmm. A huge, huge uh, amount of people who are. Uh, struggling and a very 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 small oligarchic elite which controls vast swaths of the economy mm. so the the caste politics 
there's a lot less of it. It's a much more coherent society. And I, I could be friends with a bus driver or I could be friends with uh, an oligarch or an oligarch will be friends with his high school bus driver friend because mm. they still love each other <laughs> in a way that you would not see in Paris or New York or mm-hmm. London or uh, Brisbane or, or Paris or wherever. Uh, that's good. That, that's a coherent society. Mm-hmm. Even though income inequality is something you could basically not even comprehend mm. by Western standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the politicians will be... People from the political or hipster class will be much more assimilated. They have the same values mm. as as the normies, let's say, mm-hmm. and they're still religious. It's not mm-hmm. a post religious society, and you know, in in the West, the the people who rule basically have a different civilizational set of values right. than the people they rule. Right. That's the case in France. That's the case in, in the UK. That's the case in, in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I haven't studied enough late Roman imperial stuff in order to understand what the, what the secret laws of history are for that. There probably mm-hmm. are. Sure. There sure. are people who study them. I do have books on my, <laughs> on my bookshelf. People even, you know, send me them. Like, where is this? I have a... Vladislav is currently looking at his bookshelf for some reason. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. That is... Books on... Uh, not ideal not for ideal the moment. audio. I was looking, not, a, ideal, not ideal for the audio. I went to my bookshelf to look for all these <laughs> books that I have on the, on the cyclical collapse of civilizations. Mm. So, you know, the West, the West is in trouble in the way that Ukraine is not. Mm. Ukraine has a lot of problems, but they're not, they're not spiritual problems, <laughs> you know? Can you, can you imagine any uh, plausible scenario in which the Americans or the Western Europeans um, rediscover uh, what you might call, I'm more hesitant, but what you might call martial virtues. Um, I would, I would call them martial virtues. Mm -hmm. I would, I would absolutely call them martial virtues. Uh, Yeah, look, that's a great question. And the reason that, obviously the reason that the entire West held its breath for the first two, three months Obviously, there's a lot of Ukraine fatigue setting in. Mm-hmm. But the reason everyone pitched in to help and the entire world raised Ukrainian flags everywhere and everyone watched with tremendous trepidation and tremendous reverence is that no one has seen these virtues on mm-hmm. display mm-hmm. in the West for several generations. Mm-hmm. You, you, by you, I mean, I'm an American citizen. I grew up in, in Brooklyn eating cheeseburgers, as uh, Korevnikov said. We... The, the West felt some amount of shame mm-hmm. because they know very well that if Russians start bombing their cities, they're not going to react like this. Mm-hmm. They're not going to all fight. They're not going to stand up with tremendous reverence and piety and martial virtue and strength. You're not going to have everyone banding together to get women and kids out. You're not going to have women with machine guns. But I've seen women on the front lines with machine guns and sniper rifles that are tougher than 40% of a male population of France or Spain or Portugal or Canada or some other post-historical nation. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, not to make any judgments. (laughs) (laughs) None at all, of course. (laughs) It, just a, a, a few yes. more uh, thoughts on the United States, though. The United States is really a peculiar case, though, because there are more guns in that country than citizens. There are like 400 million firearms. Yes. Um, but as far as I can tell, no one actually believes that they're going to be using them, except perhaps to shoot up elementary schools and things like that. Yeah. And so it's a very very deviant place with respect to violence yes because it's still got the violence but no martial virtue right and if you if you um you know if you just put it in the abstract and contrast it like that i would say well there is something to be said for martial virtue if it means fighting a really perfidious enemy rather than say Fighting, fighting innocent elementary school ke- elementary kids. student kids, yeah. <laughs> right? So, okay, but, you know, 40% of America, let's call them real America, red, red mm. team America, red America, yeah. they're still, they're, they're really different and they're, mm. they're, they're evolving in two different directions, mm-hmm. right? In the mm-hmm. same way that Eastern Europe is evolving away from Western Europe and, and mm-hmm. Poland and uh, Brussels are, you know, only now in a, 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 in a symbiotic relationship because of this war, because the traditional enemy of the Poles, the Russian, mm-hmm. the Bucharest and uh, 
Budapest and Warsaw have been have been well t- more more Warsaw and Budapest have been sundered from each other because mm-hmm. of of events right. on the ground. Right. Whereas the Hungarians are playing a double game and and right. they're continuously in, in, integrated with the Russian economy and they're not fighting. Mm-hmm. Although they're helping refugees and they still hate Brussels, the Poles now hate Brussels because their Brussels isn't doing enough. The Poles mm-hmm. are are carrying the 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 burden on their back more right. militarily and and refugee wise. But you you had for the last ten years, uh, in the same way that h- half of America is going in one direction, the other half of America is going in another mm-hmm. direction in terms of internal evolution of values. Mm-hmm. And this isn't to say that one is better than the other. They both mm-hmm. have values, mm-hmm. and any value has. Good traits to it and bad traits. Good mm-hmm. outcomes, bad outcomes. One man's carefulness is another man's, uh, you know, Berlinian uh, cowardice. Mm-hmm. You know, one man's honorable bravery is another man's foolhardy ridiculousness. Right, right. Mm-hmm. As you wrote about me in one of your essays, my dear friend. <laughs> uh, so you know, you have this same internal process happening in America and inside of Europe. Mm-hmm. Where you have a distinction between Western Europe and Eastern Europe, where Eastern Europe has not exited history, and a red state America has not mm-hmm. exited whatever you want to call it, the economic system, the political economic system that mm-hmm. it had, where right. where blue state America is now services and financialization and banking, right. whatever, post-industrial. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the same thing is happening uh, internally within the UK, within France. This is this is a crisis of meaning yeah. and a, a crisis of of uh, a political economy. And a crisis of coherent nation building within right. the West, universal. Right. It's just happening within the European Union at the level of uh, the 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 Poles, the Hungarians to some extent, the Slovenians mm-hmm. to some extent, the Czechs, and maybe a little bit the Romanians mm-hmm. against the Western Europeans. Right. But the war, because Russia is of course an existential threat to the Poles for mm-hmm. historical reasons, has cut the Poles away from that. From that, uh, let's call it an alliance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, now, for the next year or two, Warsaw and and Budapest are no longer going to be bound. Mm-hmm. Warsaw is going to be bound to Brussels. Mm-hmm. So you have you have a massive schism in values, right? Yeah. Again, neither good nor bad. I mean, yeah. as as outside observers of philosophical processes, neither good nor bad. You have different values. Mm-hmm. You have need different values to do different kinds of things, mm-hmm. to run different kinds of economies, to mm-hmm. run different kinds of societies. Mm-hmm. And there's a multiplicity of values in the world. And if you have peace, it's probably better to invest in peaceful values. And if you have war, you should invest in martial virtues. And we're at war right now. Right, 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 right. It's a very peculiar thing with Western Europe, though. When I look, for example, at the um, charts showing the relative amount of uh, contributions um, to the war effort in Ukraine, uh, yes. the United States compared to all of the rest of Western Europe combined, um, the United States is massively more present. And it seems to me that um, that Western Europe is in, in a very different bubble than the United States in that it still relies on the post-war order that the victorious U.S. set up, um, but is also able to kind of go on pretending that it is civilizationally beyond all that military stuff. 10,000%. Ten, ten yeah. This is the American in you talking. I like it. Mm. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to resolve this. I mean, it's... It's absolutely yeah. true. You don't need to resolve it. That is, just, that is an empirical statement of fact. That right. is, that is, uh, but also, okay, you have to break that down. Let's mm-hmm. say like 75% or 80% of NATO's budget is American. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, mm-hmm. not a, that's not a bug. It's a feature. We mm-hmm. wanted to keep the Europeans from killing each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we created a... We created a little a little zoo for them to develop uh, <laughs> post after killing each other for two wars. Keep them... Keep them from communists on one hand, keep them from fascists on the other hand. This was a kill zone mm-hmm. in between Nazis and and communists, mm-hmm. and we created we we created for them a a, a little garden, a little mm-hmm. zoo in which mm-hmm. they could live for three generations, <laughs> and slough slough off their martial virtues. Yeah, yeah. They did that. The Germans especially. Yeah, we, the we did a very good job yeah. of that. Yeah. And this was this was German. This is American policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on, on the one hand, as a Jew and uh, as someone who 
you know, my grandparents, my great grandparents were killed by Nazis, and my my great my grandfathers, and my grandfathers fought in the Red Army against us. This was state policy. We all mm-hmm. did this together. We needed to neuter the Germans, mm-hmm. and now we neutered them, and they're useless. <laughs> uh, they not only the useless, they actually spent twenty years coupling their energy market to the Russians to right. the point where mm-hmm. decoupling means that they lose basically 45% of their gas mm-hmm. and they're going to have a recession. Mm-hmm. They know it very well. They have no economy without Russian energy. They stupidly they stupidly shut off all their nuclear power plant because, again, for these very same delusional reasons. The mm-hmm. French have nuclear power, which, which is why they're independent. They cannot be delusional. Right. The Germans... Embraced green ideas, which are great if you live in, I don't know, somewhere in New Zealand and you have no natural predators around you. But they they shut off their their nuclear gas, their nuclear stations, and they they coupled their their entire industrial behemoth mm-hmm. to Russian gas and oil, mm-hmm. and they can't uncouple it. And if they do, and it's just going to happen one way or another anyway, you're going to have a gas crisis mm-hmm. in the autumn. You're going to have enough for consumers not to freeze to death, but you're going to have German industry working three days, four days, a week maximum. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a massive recession, and the Germans are going to have to take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what's going to happen. Again, uh, to move from philosophy to to uh, futurology and geopolitics and, and history and gas prices. Anyone who's watching what the Russians were doing at the level of manipulating European gas markets right. over the last year knew. Yeah, You only had to see what they were doing in terms of processing... Uh, contracts uh, uh, through through Ukrainian pipelines. Mm-hmm. We knew for a year, anyone who's watching, that the U- Ukrainians were not getting their, uh, uh, their their transit fees because the Russians were 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 pumping up the price of gas in order to have reserves, in order to have artificial shortfalls, in order to create artificial high high prices. Gas is up seven hundred percent in six months. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. And this was this was straight up preparation for war. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what the Russians were doing over the last two years, weird things like blowing up ammo depots in in the Czech Republic and buying up old Soviet shells from ca- African states and Central mm-hmm. European states. Uh, Warsaw Pact states, a lot of it was them preparing for war. Mm-hmm. The Germans had ample, ample time to at least make some sort of effort to uncouple themselves. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. That is a question of political philosophy and psychology as much mm-hmm. as it is uh, geopolitics and uh, economic dependence. Mm-hmm. And the things that you're saying about them living in a dreamland mm-hmm. paid for by the American, the Canadian taxpayer, it's completely correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And should we, should we respect this? I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm. Well, you can certainly uh, understand where it comes from and um, see the beneficent reasons behind the transformation of German society without denying that it had some long-term consequences that are less desirable. Correct. I mean, look, my family did this. Your family did this. <laughs> right. I mean, we all we all pitched in to neuter the Germans. It had to mm-hmm. be done after what they did, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but now they're now they're not just a now they're not just a, a problem, they're yeah. a liability. And I suppose France, because of its uh, deep-seated, uh, long historical pride and its refusal to give up its place among the muscle-flexing nations, <laughs> is... Ironically um, well-placed to do yeah, things. Yeah, 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 it's very strange. So uh, are, you, um, are you going back soon? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, ru- I'm flying to New York to see some people tomorrow. Uh, after that, I arrive back and I'm going to Moldova. I'm accompanying the head of the uh, British Parliamentary Defense Committee to, uh, to, um, to uh, Odessa. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually going to Sherpa around uh, the head of the British Parliamentary Defense Committee around southern Ukraine for three, four days. We're going to go see some army guys, some governors, some spooks. It'll be a lot of fun. I'll write a piece uh, that'll be in the open sphere. After that, I'm going to go to Nikolaev, mm-hmm. um, uh, deliver some deliver some uh, uh, supplies and aid, uh, then go up to Kiev to see some political people, mm-hmm. see what's going on, and then probably exit through through uh, Warsaw through or, Warsaw. or Moldova, mm-hmm. or Moldova. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go to Greece and sit there for two weeks and write a novel. Wonderful. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> um, 
I guess we, we're supposed to kind of try to come to a definition. Um, that's what we usually do, uh, though, here. I mean, maybe one way of framing the question is um, about the transhistorical nature of war, right? Yeah. I, I said that up until February, I was convinced that, uh, or I was inclined to think that war as we used to understand it, you know, trench war between great powers over territory uh, was fizzling out, was yes. on its way out in world history. And now I think I'm wrong uh, about that. It's, it, it shows no, 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 no obvious sign of going away. Um, but, and, but it could, you know, we could shift more to, you know, war by, uh, like I said, things like cyber terrorism, drones, where, uh, yeah. drones and so on. Yeah. But is there something constant and transhistorical that under Lies all of that that goes back to um, battering rams and catapults and all of that? Or is there something that at some point becomes so different that it no longer makes sense to call it by the same name? That's what I've been wondering recently. I want to split the point. I want to mm. split, I want to split uh, in, in two directions. I want to complicate it a little bit. Mm. I... Uh, it was obvious to us and already in 2014 that mm -hmm. the post-historical world order was done. Mm -hmm. The Americans did nothing when, or very little, for various important complex reasons we're not going to go into, about Crimea being, right. being stolen. The European map was rewritten mm -hmm. by the Russians. That mm -hmm. was basically the first order challenge to the post-war consensus, the liberal consensus, the world American liberal worldview, world order, whatever you want to call it, you know, mm. different people call it different things, American world domination, liberal world order, post-Soviet consensus, post-Cold War consensus, post-war consensus, different people call it different things. But it was obvious that the only reason that the Russian soldiers didn't march all the way to, to Kiev eight years ago is just that they weren't ready for it. And the, the Ukrainians fought well, they fought them to a standstill. This mm -hmm. war of, of, territory had already been going on for eight years right just was launched in a completely radical way in february of this year relaunched revitalized mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. so in a way i want to back you up on your deep skepticism of the mm -hmm. collapse of that kind of uh post-historical order this isn't just about land mm -hmm. this is an ideological war that mm -hmm. that moscow is is fighting against the idea of a liberal Russian state, mm -hmm. post-Cold War Russian liberal state, mm -hmm. against the collapse of the final dissolution. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as Sergei Plokhi says, this is the mm -hmm. collapse of the oh, right, last right. empire collapsing, mm -hmm. the dissolution of the Soviet Union 30 years onwards still taking mm -hmm. place. Right, against right. that dissolution, mm -hmm. against Ukrainian nationhood as mm -hmm. a liberal democratic state, Right. pluckily living and pluckily moving into the future right next to them and giving a bad example to Russian voters right. uh, against NATO mm -hmm. uh, as a as a world-spanning, continent-spanning military alliance that keeps mm -hmm. this kind of thing from happening, a like a, a proper IR theory revisionist power thing, right? Mm -hmm. a, just a proper, not very... Not, not, not very complex idea right. in, in IR theory, like IR theory 101, revisionist powers see declining powers and they take a stab at increasing their resources and territory and right. prestige, right? Right, right? Basic stuff, mm -hmm. IR theory. But they teach grad, stu uh, grad mm -hmm. students in their first year at, in, at Columbia, CEPA or whatever, or even third-year student in political philosophy mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. political theory or international relations somewhere else, undergrad. But but this is a, this was a ideological war. Mm -hmm. This was an attack by the post liberals on mm -hmm. the liberal consensus. Right, right, right. I mean, it's very difficult to actually understand what what uh, Putin believes because he's mm -hmm. such a troll and he's hilarious. Uh, you you said that war is traumatizing and it's exhilarating. Yes, I mean, this is a maybe a personal question, Please. but I I have to know. Uh, do you? feel like the two of those go together naturally are you drawn are you exhilarated by uh 
precisely that which is traumatizing? In other words, are you being driven back to Ukraine by the death drive? <laughs> well, this is some deep psychoanalysis here. Yeah. I'm about to see my I'm about to see my my uh, my shrink to discuss this very same thing at six o'clock. Uh, so let's let's begin the uh, let's begin yeah, the process begin here. The session. <laughs> let's begin the session here. Look, uh, parsing out what your desires are and what your values are, what your deep needs are from your pathologies is always difficult. Yes. These are my people. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are my people and literally my people, my family members who I got out, mm-hmm. uh, people who I broke laws to help get out, men of military age who are not allowed out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not going to say exactly what I did, but uh, I helped various men who needed to get out, who were, were on the kill lists. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of men who didn't need to be in places like Kharkiv or Kherson or Mariupol anymore. I got those out. Uh, I feel immensely proud of myself. I, I was I was bred for this. I was absolutely <laughs> bred for this. I spent a lot of time in South Brooklyn with men with guns as a teenager around very tough guys. I went to tough schools. I was given uh, training by various uh, security services. I was bred for this. Mm. These are my people. I feel a responsibility for them. I would not be able to respect myself if I did not go back and spend 80, 90 days there doing what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I obviously... I needed to tre- rest after that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But these are my, these are these are my ancestral lands. These are my people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm deeply tribal. Mm-hmm. I'm deeply tribal of my friends, of my family, the people I love, the artists that are around me. Uh, I'm extraordinarily tribal. I am a Ukrainian Jew who was born in Central Asia. I I'm deeply tribal, <laughs> and I was incredibly happy to meet so many Ukrainian servicemen on the eastern front mm-hmm. who are like i'm a liberal nationalist mm-hmm. you know i mm-hmm. see no contradiction between my being a nationalist my being a cosmopolitan my being uh, a uh, kind of reactionary apologist for the western canon western civilization mm-hmm. and being a liberal a liberal uh, a liberal i just see no i see no contradictions it's a it's a very special cocktail. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to think I'm a special guy. You as well. <laughs> Listen, be careful when you're back in Ukraine. Thank you, sir. Um, whatever, uh, whatever the necessity of war and strife in human uh, existence, uh, we still want you to be alive and well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we need to do this again. Uh, yeah. Once again, this has been Vladislav Davidson uh, speaking with me about war and what it is. Let me mention his book just one more time. His most recent book, From Odessa with Love, Political and Literary Essays from Post-Soviet Ukraine. Vladislav, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.